or what's yeah we'll, we'll kind of just shoot from the hip speaking Actually, of which we're, we're live right now um simon i feel like you should go first because after dom goes i could just go straight into like our little you know oh sure we'll i then we'll like totally take it off the tangent and then nick will have to bring us back you, you think you're some kind of cowboy yes uh, i'm the only sheriff in town give us give us a countdown here peter all right um we are live in three two one All right, gang, welcome to another perfectly delicious and nutritious episode of Silicon Zombies, where you'll find the best brains in the Bay and beyond. That's right, connecting live with brilliant innovators, thinkers, and entrepreneurs. And each week we demystify emerging tech, we founders scale, cause a little bit of trouble, and we're doing it. It's Tuesday, December 27th. My name is Nick Larson, serial entrepreneur and ambitious beach bum. And my name is Peter Wang. Brand community manager at Intel and also social media guy. Beautiful. Thank you so much to our sponsors, Nicodex, your remote team for software development. They've done some terrific work for our founders in our community. They're at nicodex.com. Check them out to learn more. And we're super excited to welcome our new sponsor, Primero Negocios, who are experts in digital marketing and getting you local customers. Uh, both of these teams have been a dream to work with, super talented and excited to see a partnership grow. Check them out in the show notes. So today we're exploring the thrilling world and the future of large-scale computing. So quantum computing, neuromorphic computing, and what it means for all of us. So we have the distinct pleasure to introduce a couple special guests, Dominic Andrzejuk and our guest co-host, Simon Lancaster. So Dominic is a deep tech and quantum computing expert. Uh, he was the GP of Atmos Ventures, and he's the founder of QDC. And Simon, ex-Apple, ex-Google, ex-Blackberry, not in that order. And uh, is now the GP of, uh, of a deep tech fund called Omni Venture Lab. So Dominic, uh, Dominic and Simon, super jazz to have both you guys here. Simon, why don't you kick us off and share a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. Sounds good. Thanks. Uh, so, yeah, my background, mechanical engineer, <clears throat> stumbled into the valley after having grown up in Portugal, really fell in love with, with here, with the, you know, the beaches and everything, just like you. Um, but spent the majority of my career at Apple, almost 12 years, doing technology scouting and R&D there in manufacturing, mechanical space, advanced materials as well. 2019, I transitioned out of Apple into startup realm, joined a company called Eris Composites, and also dug even deeper into what had been my hobby of angel investing last year transitioned into full-time investing as a VC and, and founder at Omni Venture Labs. We're raising our first fund for deep tech founders. We're investing at the very earliest possible stage. So yeah, thanks. And they throw a hell of a barbecue. So Dominic, how, how about yourself? <laughs> yeah, so I, I, um, I've got a slightly less orthodox trajectory for my career. So I started out in so I have a background in physics, but effectively went straight into engineering immediately after graduation and entrepreneurship. Um, so grew up mostly in Philadelphia, went to school in Philly, stuck around for a few more months thereafter, founded a company. Was it up... West Philly or like West Philadelphia? West Philadelphia? Is that a yeah, North, 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 Northeast, Northeast Philadelphia, just to make sure we don't get it twisted, okay? Got it. Great, great Polish neighborhood, yeah, Northeast Philadelphia. <laughs> 
uh, Northeast Philly. Um, and then I ended up in the Bay Area. I, I founded a company called Nooch, which was basically like Venmo back in the day. Venmo was actually one of our competitors. Um, we raised some money from plug and play. Uh, we did that for about two years. And, you know, fortunately folded the company. We were you know, super young. I was 22 at the time when we folded the company. Um, and, you know, kind of stuck around startups, stayed around in product and engineering. Um, and then, you know, when I was in my second year at this um, SaaS company, uh, I had uh, the good fortune to meet with my former boss, Ash Patel. He was uh, just starting a venture fund of his own called Murata Ventures. And um, in 2014, went over to uh, the dark side and became a VC from entrepreneurship. And, um, you know, in, in those days, there, there was no concept of deep tech yet. It wasn't a term that was coined, but we were investing in basically deep tech or the first generation of deep tech. And, you know, we invested mostly in like data driven companies and, you know, what eventually turned into machine learning. Um, but one of the companies we invested in when I joined was a company called Rigetti Quantum Computing. And that was really the first venture funded gate based quantum computing company ever to be funded by, you know, institutional venture capitalists. And it was an interesting experience because we got to see firsthand a company that literally had to reinvent the wheel every single step of the way because there was nothing that they could just pull off the shelf. They had to invent control systems. They had to invent basically every single part of the quantum computing stack. And in this case, obviously you don't have a first mover advantage. And so a company like Brigetti made a lot of you know, early mistakes that I thought later, you know, we can invest in other hardware companies that could learn from those mistakes. And so in, in 2017, I started looking at Europe as an interesting new destination for me to begin my next journey and uh, saw that there was a lot of great research coming out of quantum computing uh, throughout the UK in, in uh, Barcelona. Um, France was also an interesting region and of course my homeland of Poland. And 2018 moved back out to Warsaw. I founded a fund called Atmos Ventures and since then we've done two investments in hardware companies. One of them is Oxfordionics and the other one is Orca Computing. Both are uh, quantum computing companies that were spun out of Oxford University and both also raised Series A this year in the you know, sort of uh, liquidity bear uh, market that we live in. Um, and you know, we're quite, quite optimistic about quantum computing, whereas a lot of people are now pessimistic about quantum computing given all of the recent uh, developments in the space. So now I'm focused primarily on a software company called QDC, where we're going to leverage those quantum computing hardware platforms for optimization and specifically for lowering the barrier to entry for ML engineers for optimization. So, so Dominic, kick us off here because quantum computing is kind of a, a daunting thing for a lot of folks. How, how do you make that a little bit more approachable? Yeah. So well, quantum computing is kind of this... Mm, I like to use a quote, uh, and, and I can't take any credit for the quote because this is William Hurley of Strangeworks that coined this quote, and which is, if a quantum computer with a million qubits just magically appeared in the middle of Park Avenue this evening, nobody would know how to program it. Nobody would have a clue how to program it or even use it for very useful applications. So you've got this... I don't know what it looks like. Right. like I, don't, I don't think people even know what a quantum computer looks so, like because you know like the iconic i know that like the iconic like cylinder that everyone thinks is a quantum computer correct me if i'm wrong that's actually like a refrigeration unit like that's the cooler the coolant 
right? Yeah, the the, the golden chandeliers. Those are the most, uh, I would say, iconic. Yes, Dominic, isn't it the back of your LinkedIn as well? I think the the image. Yes. Yeah, yeah, the golden chandelier. So sort of okay. each level is an additional level of cooling before you get to the very bottom where you've got the QPU, which is literally this size. That's and then all the layers in between, you've got cabling and everything going to those QPUs, sending different types of microwave pulses to the QPU. Um, <laughs> but ultimately, the computer itself is very small. Everything around it is just pure engineering. And it's is it true that the computer has to operate in like, a range between like four to 12 Kelvin? The superconducting qubits on the order of milli to micro Kelvins, but there are other technologies like photonics that can actually run at ambient temperatures and ambient pressures. Um, now, the thing about quantum computing is that you wanna eliminate as much noise as humanly possible from your system because you're dealing with quantum effects and quantum effects can be perturbed by something as you know uh, seemingly trivial as heat. So. The less noise you have, the less errors you have in your quantum computer. This sounds exactly like the opposite of Dante's Inferno. Like the seven layers, the cold at the, at the core, because everything's like all the electrons aren't really moving very much at that. Simon, do you, what's your what's your take on this here? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm certainly really really excited about some of the applications that uh, I think quantum computer computing is going to unlock. Um, I think there's there's particularly as we start to explore applications that overlap with with ML, for example, um, and and other well cryptography. Obviously, there, that's really I think the the golden goose right now. Um, but yeah, I mean, Dominic, what are you mo what applications are you most excited about in the in the next few years? Well, I, I think one application, or, or rather, I should say, a layer of abstraction that needs to be created, because I think, um, you know, how, how, like quantum computers, there, there is a lot of hype around quantum computing. And like I mentioned, nobody would even know how to program a quantum computer, even if we had a full tolerant million qubit quantum computer at our disposal. And the reason being is because the uh, domain in which that quantum computers are going to specifically go after in the next five years will be the domain of HPC or high performance computing or scientific computing. Um, so, so what HPC is, is uh, like these are uh, physicists, mathematicians, scientists that are using scientific computing like at Oak Ridge National Laboratories or any of the other national laboratories and then running these physics simulations on these massive computers, like some of these computers are the biggest computers on the planet. And, and the thing is, and what's interesting, and actually what blew me away is when I started diving into the space earlier this year, is that the scientific computing world, and the, the conventional machine learning world of like Silicon Valley, these are two completely bipolar mm -hmm. opposite realms yeah. that I, I sort of took for granted, mm -hmm. I thought that, well, of course, machine learning and scientific computing are both the same, but it turns out, you know, these two groups of people don't talk to each other. As a matter of fact, they hate each other because of how they communicate amongst each other. And, and I have a couple of slides that I can show that sort of, that can kind of drive my point home here. But ultimately what we need in quantum computing is we need a tool that provides an abstraction layer for regular developers to figure out how to use scientific computing. And then once you've figured out that piece of the puzzle, 
then quantum computing just sort of naturally comes next because quantum computing is scientific computing at the end of the day. So what's, what's the low-hanging fruit then? Would you say it's like drug development or portfolio optimization in the fintech space? What, what would be some, some tangible applications in the, in the near term? Or to like play Fortnite? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think it's important to note that the, <laughs> quantum computers are not going to replace classical computers anytime soon. If anything, they're going to be like a coprocessor, kind of like GPUs are a coprocessor for uh, regular classical computers. Uh, and and no, yeah, nerve. <laughs> the and the the lowest hanging fruit uh, for quantum computers and something that we're working on is, uh, generically speaking, combinatorial optimization. And what is combinatorial optimization? So combinatorial optimization aims at solving some of these algorithms that are considered to be way too hard for classical computers to compute. And one of those algorithms is the trap, or one of those problems is this traveling salesman problem where you have to find the optimal route for a traveling salesman across you know, 50 different states in the entire country. Well, when you have 50 states that you have to find the optimal route to, that turns out to be a combina combinatory optimization problem or a total number of routes between those 50 states of like 10 to the 60th, right? And there's 10 to the 81st uh, or sorry, 10 to the 80th particles in the, in the known universe. So this just gives you an idea of the scale of the problem. And so classical computers today, either they use something called heuristic methods, which is just a fancy name for uh, a best guess, or some of these problems have just humans in front of a computer screen that are frantically trying to, you know, map the most uh, optimal path between point A and point B. And, you know, you have to do this in, you know, 15 to 20 minutes or in like breakneck speed. So some of these problems that computers can't solve, humans are still solving. And obviously this is suboptimal. So I want to add something here. Um, so at Intel, uh, because I manage the TikTok channel that is primarily focused on highlighting brand, uh, we get to run these like really interesting stories about uh, some of like these projects that Intel is working on, photonics, neuromorphic, quantum. Quantum is always really interesting because I, you know, I am not an engineer. My dad is an engineer. I used to go to the tech museum a lot and I know like what a clean room is, you know, but I don't know anything about like the nitty gritty about how, how computers are made and stuff like that. So we had this series on, can you explain quantum computing as if you, as if I was eight mm. and we tried it with some of the uh, people at the project, and you know, I just I, w I was immediately lost. Even when even when they had to use words like microarchitecture, um, use words like photolithography. Um, do you think you could explain what a quantum computer is as if I was an eight-year-old? <sighs> as an eight-year-old, well. Or maybe as a high schooler, let's look, go. We can use a yeah. few SAT words here there. Reading at a 12th grade level. Yeah, so the, the, the sort of, as, science, as, as being scientifically honest as humanly possible, the way I can usually try to explain how a quantum computer works versus how a classical computer works is, you know, classical computers are deterministic. It's either zero or one, and there's nothing in between. And... Unfortunately, nature doesn't work that way. If you get down to the subatomic level, nature is, it's probabilistic, it's not deterministic. And 
you know, there's the double slit experiment that has shown us that nature is just a very, very strange. And when you start to try to mm, simulate, let's say the um, electron orbitals of some sort of an atom or a molecule, uh, because you're using a deterministic device to simulate a probabilistic system, the combinatorial nature of all of these electrons moving around and spinning and all the relationships they have. And I mean, we're talking that these electrons are moving at near relativistic speeds. You, even if you have a small molecule, you know, like let's say lithium beryllium on a, even if you had all the computing power in the world, you couldn't possibly simulate that. Now, because a quantum computer in effect use, utilizes quantum phenomenon in the way that it calculates and simulates things and, and, and runs certain programs, the quantum effects are sort of baked in to the actual physics of the hardware. So instead of trying to simulate the physics themselves, you're just really using the physics to your advantage. And that's sort of one use case of quantum computers is being able to simulate um, you know, molecular systems or quantum systems a lot more effectively than say classical computers. But, but that, that's, that's such like a, excuse the, the language, like a, like a mindfuck. How can something exist and not <laughs> exist at the same time? Oh, I know. Well, when Einstein, you know, first heard of this, this whole notion of the uh, particle wave duality, um, you know, he, he said that there must be something wrong with the instrumentation in the experiment. Like, this just doesn't make any sense. And I mean, imagine if you were the physicist working on the double slit experiment and you're looking at this and, you know, imagine the mindfuck that you're experiencing and, you know, then giving it to somebody else and then giving it to another you know, physicists to sort of run your experimentations. And at that point, you know, they really had to pull their hair out and think to myself, think to themselves, oh my God, like what exactly are we living in? What is this space? Because this doesn't make any sense at all. And the thing is, is, you know, it's don't hate the player, hate the game, right? Like just adjust to the game and how you have to adjust to the game. And, you know, it was even um, Richard Feynman who said, uh, nature is not classical, damn it. You need a quantum computer in order to simulate nature. So... <laughs> So, so you and your team were pretty ahead of the curve then because, you know, it's still this nascent technology. What was, I mean, you raised capital for the fund. Like what was the, what, what were the, uh, the light at the end of the tunnel for returning the capital to the LPs? And how do you even pitch that? Like, how, how do you got to be a good storyteller? Yeah. <laughs> Cause I'm, I'm assuming as VCs, like when you guys would listen to pitches, you want something that can, that will relatively materialize you know in your lifetime right because your reputation's on the line yeah well you know we sort of stand on the shoulders of giants here because you know rigetti they were the first movers in the market in a sense you know so is ibm and google but you know back in those days superconducting qubits sounded really good on paper because they use um standard cmos fabrication techniques like regular silicon transistor chips and you know, and the whole idea was, okay, well, we'll make a couple of these qubits on our transistors. And then, you know, we figure out the engineering for one or two qubits. And then we just simply scale it up like we scale up our regular silicon chips. And then we'll be able to scale it up a la Moore's law, right? And everything looked good in paper. But then actually, when you started scaling up those superconducting chips, it turned out that you were also scaling up noise. And, and that was a big problem. And, and I remember when we were doing the Series A for Rigetti, this was back in, I think, 2015 or 16, um, they had a slide which said, you know, 2019, uh, 1 million qubits. And really sort of everybody was assuming the same thing because nobody had thought of 
you know, the physics and then eventually you make bigger chips and then the physics gets in the way. So we went back to the drawing board and I thought to myself, okay, well, you know, if we're going to invest in a hardware company that's actually going to make it, they need to figure out this physics problem. So we spent a ton of time just going through every single hardware company, looking at all the different technologies. And eventually we ended up looking at uh, ion traps and photonics as two very likely candidates that probably could fix the problem. Photonics, because photons make great qubits because they don't really interact with their environment. And so you don't have this issue of crosstalk or anything like that. And ions, because where superconducting qubits were considered these artificial atoms. So you took basically two capacitors and you trapped an electron in between these two capacitors and you're kind of hacking an atom. Well, if you're creating an artificial atom, then you're going to get a lot of unintended consequences in terms of the physics of that chip. So let's use an actual atom that has one single electron on the valence shell. And Oxford Ionics had, uh, back in 2015, published research on building the highest quality qubits in the world. And we're talking higher in terms of uh, their one and two gate qubit uh, fidelities, but also how long you can keep those qubits in a cohered quantum state. And so they were doing it on the order of like minutes, whereas most superconducting chips were doing it on the scale of like, you know, if they were lucky, milliseconds. Um, so these guys were focusing on qubit quality first, as opposed to qubit quantity. And now they've gotten to a point where they understand the physics of their chips incredibly well. And scaling those chips should, fingers crossed, mean that they're also not going to be able to scale the noise or at least be able to keep that noise maintained so that you can have much lower error rates. So that's really the holy grail right now in quantum computing is can you scale up your chips without scaling noise? And that's why we invested in those two companies. Wow. And, and you're doing it like you mentioned through light, which is pretty interesting. Just, I imagine like through biomimicry, which we were talking a little bit about, mm -hmm. there's a lot of lessons that we can learn from the brain and apply it to computer science. Like, like within the brain, for example, when the synapse receives a, a photon from another neuron and takes that from an optical signal and translates that to, uh, to a, a, a signal of, uh, of, an, of electricity, because that's what our brain does. Oh, what, are you what? transitioning to like talking about neuromorphic? <laughs> exactly. Before we do that, Simon, I actually <laughs> want to pose that the same challenge to you. Um, do, are you. Would you like to give it a try and see if you could explain quantum computing to these two idiots? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm not going to be able to explain it nearly as technically as Dom. Um, but what the, I mean, the aspect that I've been able to wrap my head around is, yes, the probabilistic nature of the qubits and the fact that because of that, you basically have, you know, an almost infinite range of amplitude or, or, um, what would it be called, Dominic? Like position, not position, but uh, value that, yeah. that the qubit can can uh, retain, and therefore, instead of being zero or one, you can now cram so much more potential data into a single bit, which in this case is qubit. I think that's really, um, to me, the the, the 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 most impressive and and interesting aspect that I can wrap my head around. Um, and I'm also fascinated just by the fact that it's incredibly like quantum computing is incredibly good at like Dominic was saying, very specific things like factoring, which plays into, you know, cryptography um, really, really well. And, and some other 
some other interesting applications. The, the implications for cryptography are insane because a lot of our cryptography since it's like the 50s or 60s, and not, maybe not that late, long ago, but 60s, I guess, is based on uh, factoring of, of big numbers and, and essentially um, relies on the fact that you can't really crunch those numbers with conventional computing. It, it will just take an infinite amount of time. And that's what, that's the barrier to deciphering cryptography. But with quantum computing, because it's insanely good at factoring, um, essentially like the first person to develop uh, viable quantum compute is going to be able to decrypt everything on the internet. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's, it's very and interesting thought exercise. Speaking, speaking of traditional computing, this is actually a question I've been kind of dying to ask. Um, Earlier, Dominic, you mentioned Moore's Law. Um, and you also mentioned before that that quantum is not trying to replace traditional computing. I'd love to hear your thoughts on like what that means for Moore's Law. Because as of right now, you know, we like we all know that we are kind of getting into the the physics wall. Like every single semiconductor manufacturer is about to face that problem. It's like 10 microns in size. Like how do you, yeah. how do you go smaller, right? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, yeah, let's do, you know, if 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 quantum is not a replacement for traditional computing, are we just going to be stuck in the angstrom era, or are we going to be switching? So, to there's oh, gonna, I think I like Dominic's explanation of the GPU, right? Like yeah. before before GPUs, what were we using our computers for? We were using them for text based games and like really basic graphics. GUI type stuff. So you can imagine, like, I don't know, I'm going back to the cryptography example because that's the one I know really well. Like, you could imagine, you know, secure computers in the future might have a secure quantum chip or processor. Dominic, what, oh, like, besides... Like, like another, like, you'll have a CPU, a GPU, and, I don't know, like a QPU, yeah. like, somewhere. Potentially. Like, Dominic, yeah. what, what else, like, besides... I, I get the factoring thing really well. Like what else? I know we keep going back to applications here and, and we might want to talk, be talking about the abstraction layer, which is actually where you, your expertise is. And I think is also really interesting, but let's wrap this up and then we can move on to the abstraction layer. Cause I think that's really interesting to talk about. Yeah. And, and it's actually a good segue. And, you know, so, Let's pretend we live in a world where hardware is just not going to get any better. We've hit a brick wall with Moore's law. No, there's not going to be any quantum computers. All the hardware we have is just going to remain relatively stagnant for the next 10 years. Now, the only way that we can actually innovate and get better at everything that we do is actually looking at the underlying mathematics of the algorithms that we're deploying on the same hardware. And actually, ironically, what quantum computing or research in quantum computing has done, and this is actually what we do at QDC, is we've developed better algorithms or better solvers for a lot of these large scale combinatorial optimization problems that utilize the math and physics that are underlying certain effects, whether it's from classical mechanics or quantum mechanics, we utilize those mathematics to build better algorithms. And now there's within, I would say the last two years, there's been a uh, sort of a new uh, rise in a field of study in ML called scientific machine learning or physics informed machine learning. 
And, and this really sort of dovetails nicely into the conversation that we're about to have with respect to how do we build that abstraction layer for developers to be able to take advantage of scientific ML without having a PhD in physics. Mm. So, so like uh, uh, pushing, the, pushing the envelope of, of innovation without the, the steep learning curve, right? Exactly, because most ML and computer scientists are focused on figuring out how do we build more efficient algorithms that can run these jobs more efficiently with less data. And that's really where a lot of the innovation is. It's at this low level, right? Or basically how is the CPU or GPU talking to memory and how do we do that so that it's quicker, it's faster. And so, you know, computer scientists are really focused on that low level. Now, physicists are focused on a very, very high level of, you know, what is the actual problem that we're dealing with and how do we actually explain this problem or, um, try and figure out a mathematical model that underlies this problem or looks like this problem that we can then apply uh, using computational. Do you want me to show this? Is this the part where I want to uh, we show the slides or we say yeah? That? All right, this is, this is perfect. Drum roll. Where's the drum roll audio? <laughs> there you go. Here we go. <laughs> I love it. So I I, pr I promise this is going to be this is going to be very simple. I like to I like to use equations because they this look really cool. Already. So <laughs> I failed calculus. Gonna throw that out there. <laughs> it, it's okay. There's no there's no prerequisite for even pre calculus in this lecture. So I'm just going to pause it with that. Um, but but yeah, what, what you see on this screen is something that most physicists and mathematicians deal with on a daily basis. And these are called differential equations. And differential equations are just a fancy word for saying, how does one thing change with respect to another thing? And Isaac Newton, when he invented calculus, all he did was he invented a new way, a very simple way of being able to illustrate how certain things change with respect to how other things change. So now in, in this particular example, I don't know if you can see my pointer, but on the right-hand side, we have du over dx, or how does the variable u change with respect to x? And on the left-hand side, we have how does the variable u change with respect to t or time? And so really all of physics is figuring out what are these small three-inch equations for systems that we're trying to explain where these systems are highly, highly complex. And, and a lot of this is involved in, in physics-informed machine learning. Uh, and I'm going to dive into uh, like one specific example that I, I think should drive the point home with how physics-informed machine learning works and then how this applies to you know, large-scale combinatorial optimization. So um, here we have a, a double pendulum. And if you guys remember from your physics class, you had to draw these force diagrams that define exactly how this classical mechanical system works. And, you know, to make a long story short, after you do a bunch of fancy mathematics, you end up with these two equations at the very bottom, these two differential equations that describe how this system works. And if you can see in the illustration here, this double pendulum is making what seems like a very chaotic um, sort of lines, arcs, whatever you want to call it. Uh, you know, to the untrained eye, this looks like chaos. But actually, you can define this chaotic movement using these differential equations. And the beauty is, is you can use these two, I mean, this is what, four inches a piece. So you have roughly eight inches of real estate 
that you need to show how this super complex system works. And it kind um, of looks like the pattern that it's building is starting to seem some kind of or it, it would look chaotic at first, but like it you know, kind of looks like a salad bowl now. So yeah, or some sort of like hyperbolic something. Derivatives by chance, Dom? Yes, yeah. So this is just complex derivatives, complex integrals. Um, in this case, we're dealing with contour integrals because we're dealing with sines and cosines. And we're probably going to be integrating over, you know, imaginary numbers. But to make this sort of as, as simple as humanly possible, yes. If you remember derivatives and integrals from your calculus class, this is exactly what physicists do all day, every day. And now, if you guys also remember from your physics classes, every single one of those word problems that you had to solve said, imagine a world where there's no friction and there's no air resistance, right? And we all know that that world doesn't exist. And also trying to just use first principles physics to define your system with all of these nuances is incredibly hard. Uh, now on, on the flip side, we have something like machine learning where you start from scratch and you give it a double pendulum and you let the double pendulum swing around for a while. And then you have the machine learning figure out the laws of physics from basically raw data. And that's fine, but the problem is, is you need a ton of data in order to do that. And you need to be able to run your experiment Wait, multiple that's times. That's what machine learning is. It's like you creating an environment for the machine and, and then you, you just say, hey guy, have fun. Yeah, figure it out. I've never heard ex anyone explain it that way. That's, that's, that's really so, cool. So how does, how does synthetic data play into that scenario? Mm. So synthetic data, is great because you can create all this data that's sort of based on real world data. And now synthetic data is used primarily because of security issues. Uh, there's been a lot of nightmares and, you know, fires that had to do with developers using production data in test environments. And then obviously test environments are less secure than production environments. And so you end up with, you know, just a total shit show when your staging environment becomes compromised by hackers and all of a sudden hackers have information uh, as it pertains to all your customers. So that's what I have heard of synthetic data being used primarily in, in that sense. Mm -hmm. um, but you can also use synthetic data to create, you know, like use physics to try and simulate, let's say an ideal double pendulum. Mm. Wow. So you have machine learning, which is really hard. And then you have first principles physics, which is really hard. So defining the perfect system with all the nuances is impossible with just pen and paper. And then with machine learning, you just need tons of data and tons of computational resources in order to figure out or incorporate those known physics into your model. And so there has to be some kind of a sweet spot here. So why don't we use first principles physics to first just teach our neural nets, hey, this is what the physics of the world look like that you're gonna be monitoring. And then let's use machine learning to sort of fill in the blanks to find those discrepancies in our model so that way we don't need as much data and we use far less computational resources and now when we put this into practice this is actually a uh, a model that was used i believe this is from an mit lab with a double pendulum and it only uses first principles physics and as you can see because it's using an idealized model it doesn't include any of the friction or the air resistance and all the other nuances it's really struggling to figure out how to get this double pendulum to balance itself but when we use a little bit of machine learning magic and we fill in the discrepancies oh, in machine learning. Wow. Exactly. This is now 
what makes scientific machine learning very powerful. It's you're, you're, you're telling these neural nets, hey, listen, this is what the laws of physics look like. Uh, this is what you should be concerned about. And then fill in the blanks with a little bit of data. And then you have a much better model. You can, wow. you can train your models much faster. And then inferencing becomes a lot easier. I'm really glad um, we got animations to work. Right. And, and so, so it sounds like See? there's a lot of pretty cool applications in, in robotics then as well, right? From the quantum mm. space. And then also, Dominic, if you could touch on the difference between that neuromorphic and introduce that, that'd be awesome. Yeah, sure. So uh, as far as um, I know, neuromorphic is effectively just mimicking the neurons in the brain, right? Um, and when you, use, uh, scientific, when you use scientific machine learning, what you're telling those neurons is, hey, neurons, uh, we just need to let you know that you're dealing with this specific subset of physics. And so when we're training our models, just be on the lookout for these specific kind of trends that you should be looking for. And, and I have some illustrations that'll show that in just a second, and, and it'll help sort of tie that home again. But before I continue on to that, I just want to uh, go back to the previous comment that I made at the beginning of the show, where I said, you know, physicists and computer scientists, you know, kind of hate each other, and they don't really talk, and they haven't really been talking for quite some time. And that's because if we go back to our first slide, physicists love this. They like little tiny equations that define uh, what nature is in a very simplistic way. But then when you go to code something like this in Python, this is what it looks like. Mm -hmm. And this is just computing the single mm -hmm. angle in a sim simple pendulum. And this is something that is, you know, maybe four or five characters long when you look at the actual physics equation. But when you're using Python, and remember, Python is supposed to be a simple language. When you're using Python and you look something like that, this is not readable. And so as a physicist looking at this, you know, to the computer scientists, they're probably thinking to themselves, wow, these computer scientists are really stupid because something that's so simple, they've managed to completely turn into so something that is so complicated that it makes it irreadable. And so the this is why the scientific world and the machine learning world just never really quite got along. Meanwhile, Until now, doing like, what are we, <laughs> what are we watching? <laughs> so Dominic, as far as applications in the real world, and by the way, we could stay longer in the abstraction layer, which is pretty fascinating as well. But you mentioned the ability to save up to a quarter million dollars, being able to rebook dynamically folks on a flight. Um, Good that, timing for that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty remarkable. Um, it, it, how does how does that work? How did you figure that out? And how are you bringing these two disparate parties together? Sure. Um, so so I'll talk about sort of how that maps onto the technical use case, and then I'll talk more sort of about the business use case as a follow up. Um, so now it, the question is, is like, well, why, why does all this physics and form machine learning work? Like, OK, fine, you can simulate a pendulum. Big whoop. Like, what does that have to do with actually solving real world problems? Um, well, in terms of the real world, like we can actually map real equations from nature onto the real world. And one example I use is traffic. Traffic kind of acts like a liquid. It's a different liquid because as you get fewer and fewer lanes and the diameter of your pipe begins to get smaller, then the flow of traffic slows down, whereas with liquids, it speeds up. And so you can actually map some of these real world type scenarios to a physics problem where it looks somewhat familiar, but then you use the machine learning to sort of fill in the gaps and optimize your model such that it works, you know, a lot more cleaner and smoother. Mm -hmm. And 
one of the use cases that we're working on at QDC is, and I'll actually stop my screen here. Um, one of the use cases and one of the POCs we're working on with our current customer involves a topic that is considered to be an unsolved problem in the realm of computer science. And that's specifically in operations research, or in this case, what happens when a flight gets canceled? Well, when you have a flight and it gets canceled, you have so many dependencies. You obviously have to rebook the passengers onto different flights. You have to then figure out what you're gonna do with the crew. Are you gonna put them in hotels? Are you gonna put them into another flight? Are you going to put them back to work? Can you legally put them back to work? Because they work a certain number of hours. And then what happens with the plane that was supposed to arrive? What do you do with that plane? Do you keep it in the airport? Do you move it to another airport so you don't have to pay all the fees that are associated with keeping it at the airport? So there are so many decisions that you have to make. And the problem is, is you have to make these decisions within like 15 minutes. And computers just simply aren't capable of doing that. And so you have companies like Lufthansa that have teams of 200 or 250 people in front of a computer screen whose sole job is to just move passengers around and to move them around quickly. And every second that goes by is potentially thousands of dollars to their bottom line. Now, earlier this year, Google, they did a POC for uh, Lufthansa on this exact use case. And what they showed was they used their, uh, Google's, Google has this operations research library, which is a bunch of scientific and mathematical solvers coming from the world of HPC. They threw a bunch of PhDs at the problem. And in exchange, Google told Lufthansa, listen, Lufthansa, we're gonna do all this consulting work for you for free, but you have to actually host these solvers on Google Cloud to use them because obviously it's going to take tons and tons of computing resources to do it. And so Lufthansa was like, okay, fine. And after they did the POC and published the results back in September of this year, they showed that their, um, their CP mat solver was able to save Lufthansa anywhere between 20,000 on the lowest end, all the way up to $360,000 per flight on the higher end. So we're talking higher end, like a bus, a 380 or a Boeing 747. And, and so what this shows you is how much, like actually how much optimization you can do in the market for the airlines. And if you amortize this over all the airlines in the entire world on an annual basis, in 2021, there was roughly 122,000 cancellations in the world. Now, even if you use that, 20, that minimum floor of $20,000 per flight saved, that translates to roughly $2.4 billion saved annually for the airlines, right? And so that's not, you know, total addressable market. That's the obtainable market that you have for these customers. And, and so quantum computing isn't going to change the world overnight or, you know, with at, at the drop of a hat. It's going to look at these large-scale problems and it's going to optimize them in little, small ways so that it saves at the end of the day, you know, a lot of value. But the thing is, is you need scale. And that's what we're focused on is we're looking for very, very large scale problems where we can just trim the fat on these large scale problems. We then provide this product to the market for a, a specific use case. And then our customers are happy because at the end of the day, the airlines, all they want to do is save money. So instead of installing new seats and making our seats smaller and smaller mm-hmm. on the flights, we'll just be able to save more money by making sure that cancellations and delays are rebooked effectively. Wow. So like big data, bigger opportunity. It, it's, it's wild that this computation that it takes seconds um, and, and traditionally would, it would take years. It's such a 
you know, quantum leap. <laughs> Sorry. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I like what I was saying. There's like some very specific applications that are really, 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 really powerful, but we're not going to switch over like our reg regular compute over to quantum, maybe even ever. So, so Simon, yeah. from, from a material sciences perspective, what kind of interesting, uh, application oh, in that space <laughs> tell, tell us what you can in 15 minutes <laughs> Go. great great question uh, i mean i think it's the same i think you know at, at the most basic level there are insane um you know factorial type problems with material science material science is is being aided a lot by by um, ml as well with some some interesting applications recently but Ultimately, you know, it's just arrangements of of atoms or arrangements of uh, molecules and crystal structures, um, and yeah, there, there's some new materials being being discovered through through uh, advanced compute recently, um, which which is really really cool, and in materials that we don't even necessarily have the ability to create yet, given uh, you know actual manufacturing processes. But it's it's really interesting to see, um, yeah, what is is coming in the future, right? And discovering those a little bit like like Einstein did before before the physics of of the real world instrumentation catches up. Yeah, we've we've got Dominic <clears throat> to, to to help us bridge the gap. Peter, mm -hmm. do you want to share a couple of the questions from the audience? Yeah, here? definitely. And I just found out this cool feature on here. I'm gonna see if, what happens when I click on this. Oh, oh so wow! Boom. Okay, cool. So, um, <laughs> Rudolfo asked, uh, "TSMC started production for the processor MG Pro in three nanometer. When the space between the atoms approaches, quantum things with these atoms begin to happen, making it hard each year to go deeper. So, how far are we to have a framework that can translate our Boolean logic into quantum logic and make it possible?" To use it in our classic platforms, basically, oh, if if these Went two computers, real. if traditional and quantum, and this maybe let's throw neuromorphic in there, if <laughs> these three exist in the same world, how do we talk? How do they talk to each other? Is it like you know me talking to someone who speaks Arabic to talk to someone <laughs> who only speaks in Python? Is right. it like <laughs> great, great question, Rodolfo? Dominic, you want to take a crack? Yeah, wait, I just lost the question again, but oh, let me know, let me try to. Oh, here you go. Back on. Okay, I see. I yeah, just see the so, I, I see. Okay, so uh, God, it's it's a it's a brilliant question, and and the thing is, is uh, for the next fifteen years, the HPC classical computers are going to be working hand in hand with quantum computers, and it's in fifteen years, it may even be twenty five years, because again, like I said before, it's it, quantum computers a coprocessor. We're still going to need classical computers to do video streaming and to do things that we need deterministic computers for. Um, and we're also going to need classical computers to do error correction on quantum computers mm -hmm. because quantum computers are going to be error prone for you know the foreseeable future. And we need to have uh, these effectively coprocessors, if we're talking about classical computers, to be working in tandem with, with quantum computers. And there's also been a lot of research in the field of hybrid classical quantum computing, where the two are basically, you know, conjoined at the hip. And 
in order to solve a lot of these large scale combinatorial optimization problems, you need to have the two. Um, now, as the classical silicon gets to a point where it gets so small that we experience quantum tunneling effects between the transistor effectively rendering classical transistors useless, we either need to find different materials uh, so that we can run these things at a higher frequency so that it doesn't melt the silicon on the chip. So we either increase the frequency. If we keep the transistor count the same, we increase the number of cores. So we figure out, again, going back to mathematics and algorithms, how do we build better algorithms that are more highly parallelizable as opposed to running on a single thread? Um, so that's another option. And But yeah, eventually we're going to get to a point where the quantum mechanics happening inside of the classical chip are going to actually you know we're not going to be able to do anything with that it's going to be a hindrance as opposed to something that helps us out so um so uh, you know I, I don't know I, I don't have a crystal ball i mean it could be neuromorphic computing where we take more of an analog approach and we um code into the actual hardware itself the neurons as opposed to simulating those neurons in say a gpu or a cpu so um but it's it's a really it's a very very exciting space of research um, that's happening right now. I mean, reservoir computing is also something that looks at taking advantage of, you know, better algorithms for use on classical computers once we do hit that, um, that minimum transistor size. Uh, so just to name a few examples. So, so Dominic, when you say parallel algorithms, is that uh, an effort to, to focus on one specific differential equation and kind of isolate the problem you're trying to solve? Well, it's more sort of trying to figure out how to take one problem and split it into many, many, many different problems that are solved in parallel. And then you sort of map reduce them and bring them back to solve that initial problem. And it's, it's something that's used a lot in sort of theoretical computer science. And I guess one sort of um, one example of this is like, you know, binary search where you take a search and you kind of break it up into two and then you break those two pieces up into two smaller pieces and you keep breaking them up and you have a better search algorithm that uses effectively like you're hacking mathematics to find a better search algorithm. Um, you know, that's one sort of example of using more parallelizable compute in order to get to create better algorithms. Um, so a lot of this stuff can actually be solved in software. Well, it's like a decision tree on, on steroids, right? Yeah. Um, like every decision, right? All, all of the, all of the questions <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> it's almost, it sounds like you're like giving a computer like a like one of the infinity stones. What's an infinity stone? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, right, right. In the, in yeah, the yeah, yeah, yeah. I got you. Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, so, um, to to kind of zoom out for a quick second, and by the way, Pee Wee, do we have any other any more questions there? Uh, no. Okay. So we're. Uh, our friend Jules has, has made this deck of cards called Conscious Conversations, and they're pretty fun. It steps away from the technical and kind of gets, gets, gets back to the human element. So, Pee-wee, you want to pick one of these and read it for us? All right. Okay. When were your 15 minutes of fame? <laughs> I thought it said 15 minutes of lame. <laughs> <laughs> Mine was this morning. Just kidding. <laughs> so, great question. Yeah. Hmm. Simon, do you want to go first? The question is, when was no, that? One second. I'm going to put it on the banner real quick, just <laughs> because I know how to use it. And this is such a cool feature. Uh, when, when were your 15 minutes of fame? 
<laughs> Dominic, you look like you're onto something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's kind of, time. it's kind of funny. I, um, so when I moved to Poland, the first thing Polish people would ask me was, why the hell would you leave California for Poland? And if you know anything about Poland, 260 days out of a year, it's gray, rainy, and it's windy, and it's cold. And I thought that so was every everywhere but California that was like that. <laughs> pretty <laughs> pretty, pretty <laughs> much, maybe not Arizona. <laughs> and and I, got, I got so sick and tired of answering the same question over and over again, where I effectively like memorized uh, my response and and then I wrote an article and then I did a video of, you know, why I left California for Poland. And man, this thing went so viral. And, you know, within about a week, I had about a quarter of a million views on YouTube. Wow. And, you know, and then half a million on, on TikTok. And all of a is sudden, that, you know, is that how you got to 8,000 followers? Not that I was definitely, I haven't been stalking you off TikTok or anything. <laughs> <laughs> Primarily, yeah. I just took that video, which is like a you know seven or eight minute long video, which nobody watches seven. Nobody watches three minutes on TikTok, and I just posted it because I was like, I'm not on TikTok. Let's see what all, what all the fuss is about. Post the video, and then next morning I had like seven thousand followers. <laughs> no, that's pretty cool. Mine, mine is not nearly as cool, but I'm gonna follow the trend of geography and backgrounds. Um, I was born and raised in Portugal. No one gave a, you know anything about Portugal for so many years. It's like a third world country left to study engineering and come back, come, come to, to California, like I mentioned at the beginning. Um, but yeah, recently that's been my 15 minutes of fame is like, everyone is super interested in, in the fact that I, I was born and raised in Portugal. Um, Web summit is now there. It's like digital nomad paradise, golden visa, all this, all this good, good jazz. So I'm kind of like, Helping a lot of people moving there, investors that want to want to invest there and that type of thing. No taxes as well. To, yeah, no, no taxes. There's like That's a lot of benefits if you're like digital part of Portugal that looks like San Francisco. <laughs> Lisbon, yeah, the capital looks oh, yeah. looks yeah, like Lisbon's cool. Yeah. yeah, there's there's some pretty good um, <laughs> bridges between the two cities. <laughs> No pun intended. They have they have an identical bridge, actually. Yeah, I, I the, think they're sister yeah, cities as well. Um, so yeah, for myself, like 15 minutes of fame. I uh, a friend had created a, a social media application that was like 10 second videos, and you could do music, you do stop motion, slow motion, and uh, yeah, was we, we kind of got really focused on it, and I got about a hundred thousand followers uh, in the course of like uh, about six months, and. Of course, they got they crashed and got bought by Justin Bieber or something like that. Now it's musically, but uh, so it's not Vine, correct? It, it was, okay. yeah. I like the, the user interface a little bit better, but anyways, Bachelorette number two, same question. I've never been famous. It's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody knows you you're Burning Man, and like people are like running across the playa to give this guy a big hug. Peter, weren't you doing stand up comedy? Oh, that's when we met. Actually, yeah. I want to go on a tangent. <laughs> I, I love that. Right like, now. so when I so Dominic was the first person that I invited invited onto this show. Yeah, and I honestly, Dominic, I didn't know you were this cool. Like, <laughs> if I, had I known that you were this cool, I would. I we, you'd probably be on the show sooner. We've but, had some pretty badass episodes. This is this look, is up there like, for sure. Because we 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 met at a meditation retreat. We just like like really connected with music, and. I just like, I just walked away with like, you know, knowing that like, oh, I met this cool dude. He like loves music. 
that the same music I do. And like we had like a great conversation. I didn't realize you were a physicist. <laughs> Where was the retreat? So it so was up in the Santa Cruz that. Mountains. So we've got a few uh, a, f- a few minutes left here, and I did want to give a, a chance for Dominic you to share what you're doing with QDC, and then Simon what you're doing with Omni Venture Labs uh, as as we wrap up. So uh, Dominic, you want to share a little bit about what you're looking for and how our community can support what you're building with QDC? Yeah, so so QDC we're we're venture funded. We've got some amazing investors on our cap table. We raised a pre-seed. Several months ago, um, closed our first customer several weeks ago, and now we're we're building and we're fundraising. Of course, um, we just closed. I found out on December twenty third, so right before Christmas, we got uh, great news from uh, the EU. We landed a one point six million dollar EU grant for further funding of our project, which is super exciting. Oh, oh. And um, <laughs> and Donic, did I spell that right? QDC.ai. Perfect. Cool. It's not as complicated as my last name. So, you know, that's, <laughs> at least it's that. And, and uh, yeah, so, you know, we're, we're at a point now where the product that we're building is will enable machine learning engineers from Silicon Valley or all stripes of the world that are your conventional machine learning al- algorithm engineers is we're giving them a tool that gives them access to scientific computing that doesn't necessitate them to be mathematicians or physicians or, or sorry, physicists. Um, you have a problem, you can explain your problem semantically using words and using data to then give into our engine. And then our engine creates the mathematical models for you. So you as a computer scientist or as an ML engineer can focus on data engineering or doing it as what you do. And then we do all the heavy lifting in the background. So ultimately we're lowering the barrier to entry for large scale combinatorial optimization for regular data science teams. And hey, let's face it, the world is getting more and more complex. There's more and more data and combinatorial optimization has become more and more relevant as the years go on. And of course, not to mention our second aspect of what we're doing is we're getting our companies that use our product to be quantum ready. So we believe that quantum computing should be made accessible to ML teams where ML teams Mm -hmm. currently just have no idea on where to even start when it comes to quantum algorithms. There's a a gentleman we had on a few weeks ago named Ethan Ewing from ProPair. And I think, uh, I think you guys might be able to collaborate because they're, they're they're kicking butt in that space specifically in the insurance space. Um, So amazing. Connect you gentlemen. And Dominic, you're raising a seed round right now? Seed round right now, correct. Very cool. Yeah, I mean, we should we should chat. It's uh, similar to what we're focused on at Omni Venture Labs. Um, mm-hmm. We are trying to come in essentially super, super early with, with mid-career technical professionals. We've seen a trend of professionals in industry with great in- industry insights right now in engineering and science who are working on you know, various side side projects and side gigs. Um, and, and we want to kind of be the ones, the first ones that they talk to and enable those those great scientists to turn their passion project into their day job. Mm. Um, yeah, and particularly we are focused on, uh, in, at OmniVenture Labs, on industry shaping technologies. Mm. So our backgrounds are partners are mechatronics, mechanical, manufacturing, and materials engineers. So we're kind of focused on uh, our our expertise and being able to do diligence before other 
um, firms. And that's, I think that's kind of a, a trend right now with micro VCs is really becoming specialized versus general and being able to do diligence on the IP and the tech and the founders, but the IP and the tech before there's actual uh, traction and, and market validation and trying to beat the more general VCs to, to the, to the awesomest startups. And, Amazing. And, uh, technical founders. Yep. And founders that are looking for early stage capital in the deep tech space, I definitely reach out to Simon. Yep. Amazing dude. Brilliant fella. Um, I also want to make sure to get Nicodex in here too. Um, uh, so Nicodex has been a, a longtime partner. So Rodolfo, please uh, show us a little bit about what you and the team are building here for us. Thank you so much, Nick, for your time. Uh, I just want to say I was in the back super excited hearing about quantum computers. So my mind just flowed. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's right. amazing what you're doing, Simon, Dominic. Um, it's, it's amazing. And today I just want to ask two questions to everyone. And it's, how often do you wait until 9 p.m. to start working with your team? The second one is how many times your team tells you that some feature will be done by tomorrow. It's past an entire week and, you, and this still needs to be done. Well, this is why we are here to tell you you are not alone. There is a pool of skills, engineers and creatives in your same time zone. And I know it's pretty hard to have your team outside where you're located, but trust in the results we have a business to go from one depth to 50, and now there is a unicorn. Come on us, we will be happy to show you how we can make it work. Send me a message to uh, schedule a meeting or reach out at ecodex.com. Fantastic. Very cool. Thank you. Amazing. Um, also want to give another shout out to our friends at Prometo Negocios. Again, when it comes to digital marketing and getting you local customers, these guys are the best. So a uh, big fan of them. And thank you so much for supporting the show. Here we go. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us, you guys. Really enjoyed having you both. Uh, make sure to tune in next Tuesday, 5 p.m. Pacific, more of the best brains in the Bay. Until then, take care of yourselves. Sure Bye, guys. Thank you so much. <laughs> no one can.